Okay. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk and beyond. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And uh, today I am very thankful to be joined by a man who grew up right around the corner from Ebbets Field, more or less, and that is Robert Kaiserling, Crown Heights native. Robert, what is going on today? I hope you and your family are doing well through everything that's going on right now. Um, We're doing well. We had a lot of rain, thunderstorms earlier this, this morning, cool temperatures off, so I don't believe that we'll be up in the 90s today. So, so we're well, happy about that. It can get it can get gross out there. I know. And and right now you are currently out in the uh, Kansas City area, but of course that is your cr- background in Brooklyn. So if you could uh, give a, our audience both your personal uh, uh, background, your personal history, as well as your personal baseball fandom history. Well, I was born in 1943. Uh, Raised up at on Eastern Parkway. I went to public school at Public School 241 on President Street. Um, for us graybeards here, baseball was a game that was played during the day and during the week. And when we'd be out on our playground at school, you know, we were within less than a half a mile from Ebbets Field. And you could tell if the Dodgers were winning when you'd hear all the char- you know, all the cheers coming from the stadium. You could hear it. Uh, we weren't really that far away. I think we were the closest public school to uh, Ebbets Field. Uh, most people were followers of the Dodger. Uh, You know where the term fanatic or fan comes from, from fanatic. And this is what people were like in Brooklyn. And I think I had mentioned to you, okay, I did at least get to see Jackie Robinson in his initial season in 47 and may have occasionally followed games. And, of course, winning the MVP in 1949, you know, just made him a further hero. And the success of the Dodgers, 47 through 56, making the World Series in at least six of those years, you know, we, we loved the Dodgers. We idolized them. And it wasn't until the Jackie Robinson story came out in 1950 that we even considered that Jackie Robinson was black. He was a Dodger. As kids, we didn't see color. We just saw these guys were our heroes. And uh, back in those days, players didn't get paid very much money as a minimum salary. So these guys had second jobs and doing anything that they could to make extra money. You'd see them in the neighborhood. 
that's one of the memories that I had of that. And then like any kid, uh, at least for us growing up, your street cred came from were you an athlete? And you modeled yourself after your home team players. And so you'd probably have a kid who was a pitcher who wanted to throw the fastball uh, to be a Rex Barney, so to speak. And the other kids who wanted to learn, you know, uh, or be like Jackie and take the extra base, steal the base, don't hesitate, wait for hesitation on the other players. And this is the way that we played it. Uh, we'd go out and play ball on Saturday out of the, out of the house by 9 o'clock, and we wouldn't come home until till 5. I wouldn't say at dark because probably we couldn't see the ball. So that's what it's like, the, the adulation of these players. And I was one of these uh, nutty kids. The first game that I went to by myself at Ebbets was when I was about 10 years old. I brought my brother's catcher's mitt, a first baseman's mitt, and an outfielder's mitt. And, of course, sat behind a pole. A lot of people, a lot of fans around me, older guys, (laughs) laughing their heads off. But, uh, hey, that's part of the learning process. I was also another one of these kids who stood across the street on Bedford Avenue in front of the auto dealership with glove in hand. There must have been about 50, 60 of us. And I think that the owner of the dealership gave us either every kid 10 cents a piece or or a quarter to catch a ball before it hits the car that were in on new and used cars on his lot uh at ten years old, I never came near anything, and I doubt uh, for the many times that I have been out there that anybody uh, i mean I never came close to catching a ball, and I don't think that, say, if Duke Snyder uh, smacked one over the right field wall, I don't think that any of his shots hit one of those cars because there were so many kids out there. You know, and... different. There's so many different places to go, but let's start with Duke then because it seems that Duke Snyder is the prototypical go-to stereotype for a home run over the Bedford Avenue wall. Why do you think that is? What, is, what was it about the Duke, Duke Snyder, and, and his prowess that when you, when you think about all those ballplayers that could pull it down the, uh, the right field line, you, everybody always goes to Duke? Well, Duke Snyder was the uh, first National League player to lead the league in, or to not lead the league, but rather to have 40 home runs for five consecutive seasons. Uh, 
you didn't have uniformity amongst major league parks. Uh, look at the polo grounds, which I've been to, where the Giants played their home games. It was less than 300 feet down the right field line. And you'd look at Yankee Stadium, again, 300 feet or less there. And they had a wall there two and a half, three feet high. The Dodgers, thank God, had uh, uh, your scoreboard and your screen. And I I forget, uh, maybe the screen was 40 feet high. Duke was a good, a really good hitter. He was, uh, he flirted all the time with a 300 batting average. He wasn't, uh, you know, someone who could hit the home runs but couldn't hit for the average. And you look at some of these players and you and you say, these guys who were sluggers, and they had more walks than they had strikeouts. So they weren't just free swingers, and Duke got in a groove and this is where he hit him. If you think of him, I mean, maybe seeing Stan, the Cardinals come in and play, and maybe see Stan Musial hitting it over there and and it landing out on Bedford Avenue. But then again, he didn't play as many games at Ebbets Field uh, as the Duke did. The only other left-hand hitter that I could think of that the Dodgers uh, played on a consistent basis and was a home run threat was George Shotgun Shuba. So, uh, yeah, plus yeah it, it does make sense. And, and of course, you know, uh, uh, Stan the Man Usual got his name from Evans Field. So, if there was ever a player to think of outside of the Dodgers, it certainly it, it would certainly be Stan. And of course, you had in New York City, you had Willie Mays in center field. Of course, for the Giants, Mickey Mantle for the Yankees, and Duke Snyder for center. And I believe every year in the spring. Sport Magazine came out and they evaluated the players and the big story is who's the best center fielder in baseball? Who was the best man for power? Who was the best fielder? You know, how they talk about uh, the players with uh, had all five skills. And I think Duke came up as number one uh, because he wasn't playing in, in a, uh, a tremendously big park. And so there were a lot of line drives that he had to cut off. And, you know, here at Kansas City, probably the best feeling that I've ever seen was by Bo Jackson, I think, in the All-Star game, running up yeah, that the wall sense. and taking yeah. in a drive. Well, Snyder made the same types of plays, although, you know. Yeah. And and it was better than Mantle. 
And Willie Mays was a tremendous center fielder, but I don't think that he was the equal of Duke because he had a big park to play in, plenty of room to run down a ball. Whereas Duke, I mean, it's a friendly park. And so he, he right, right, and well, Duke also had to. Duke was basically the first generation that uh, uh, could. Well, I, I, for, I you know, I'd, I'd have to go back and do my research as to exactly how padded the walls were at that point. But because of Pete Reeser in center field, leading oh, yeah. up to Duke, uh, you he was he was more protected and probably had more stories going into his tenure as to how to play, uh, uh, you know, the pinball, uh, the pinball machine of, of baseball, as they used to call Evans Field. Right. And uh, the guy who was probably, you know, as a Brooklyn fan, and of course I'm going to say this, the best defensive outfielder was Carl Farillo and learning how to play yeah, everybody right has field said that, ball. Yeah. And, and the screen, and we've seen, with runners, they get a little lapse, and they make the wide turn at first base, and we've seen them throw throw a runner out, throw behind them, and they they couldn't get back to first fast enough, and it was like uh, it was almost as fast as Sandy Koufax's fastball. I mean, <laughs> you know, he got the nickname Redding Rifle. And it was like a rifle shot. They didn't take extra bases on Ferrillo. Right. And when you go and you look at that and you've got two guys who, you know, Snyder and Ferrillo, I mean, these guys were really tremendous uh, defensive outfielders. And whoever the Dodgers hadn't left, you know, they more than made up for anything that a left fielder would lack. Yeah. So you you were born in '43. To to uh, let's go back to the neighborhood and and um, which obviously the baseball was a part of. But we could go on and on about the baseball side of things, and especially the baseball on its way back. I've got the fever right now. But but that's that's for a tangent uh, at, at another point. You were born in 1943. What's so interesting about that is, you know, you're talking about how with Jackie Robinson and by 1947, 1948, 1949, you're still not completely, you don't understand how powerful his presence in Major League Baseball was at the time as well as other black ball players. Um, So considering you were born, you know, before D-Day, uh, but probably, you know, 1945, 1946, I'm guessing, is some of your earliest memories. So how cognizant were you of the fact that the war had just ended? What was your, your feeling as you learned how to be a human being? Uh, what, what are some of your memories of, of the neighborhood at the time with all the, the uh, uh, with people moving out to the suburbs, but all the GIs coming back as well? Uh, just go, go down that rabbit hole, if you will. I think that the emphasis should probably be placed on the returning veterans from World War II. With the GI Bill of Rights, 
there were a great number of servicemen who had come back, used that, opened up small businesses. And as is most neighborhoods in New York City, they had your neighborhood in essence was like a small village and you knew everybody and they were all different kinds of people Italians Irish Jewish black uh, German you name it and they they had all kinds of of stores uh, I don't know. Did you grow up with uh, candy stores? And you'd yeah, go I in there. I, 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 yeah, I don't think in the same type of way in terms of the fountain shops, but but it, there, there clearly is a line of demarcation. I was born in 18, 1985, um, and so I think that there's some of the old school world that that you know I. It, it, there is a deal. There, there is something to be said about the fact that Super Nintendo didn't exist until I was five years old, and and the uh, and the first computer I had was Windows 3.1. So, like, as opposed to some of these kids that have never known world, uh, life without a smartphone, without an iPhone, uh, you know, I, I I didn't have the fountain shop type candy store that that you may be talking about. Well, we had that, and I think one of the reasons at least in our neighborhood, we had Bishop McDonald Catholic Girls High School there on Eastern Parkway, directly across Eastern Parkway from us. And then we had, next to PS241, Clara Barton Vocational High School and Prospect Heights Vocational High School. High school all girls schools and of course they'd be in there after school they'd be going let's say to a deli to go and get french fries hot dogs knishes little pizza parlor going and buying pizza by the slice 15 cents and a big and a big slice uh, the girls would be every place. Uh, they'd go into the candy store and they'd be getting egg creams. Uh, that's one thing that I do miss from, from Brooklyn. Yeah. But the but, egg creams. You I mean, I, it was I think there. Uh, go ahead. They, they had the veterans, some of them opened, you know, because of this new thing, rock and roll, they opened up record shops. And instead of those old 78 records, they were selling uh, LPs and 45s. And, I mean... Yeah, I, I, I would love to go down. I'd love to go down this tangent with you, the music tangent. So, what you remember about that with these records? So, so let's say it's 1953, and you're 10 years old. How into music are you at that particular point? 
I think that we're always into music. Uh, for one thing, I never went through a phase where you said, oh, my parents' music is old-fashioned. This isn't my right. music. Yeah. Here, I've got you got to listen to this stuff. This is mine. You know, I think so many of us had listened to the hit par- your hit parade, which I think had been first on radio and then on TV from 1950 to 57. And you were starting to see some type of change from maybe what you would phrase as saccharine melodies to uh, you were getting rock and roll or somewhat of the birth of rock and roll. For instance, in 53, the Drifters, yep. they formed. Now, the Clyde, the Clyde McFadder Drifters, not the Benny King yeah. Drifters. And then uh, there was, in 1950, Billy Ward and the Dominoes. 53, Jackie Wilson. The Penguins in 53. Coasters were the were 55. And what happened in broadcasting is you found that more and more stations were catering uh, to this youth culture. Alan Freed came in from Cleveland, and he used to run... Uh, rock and roll, I mean, he was the most popular DJ in New York City, but he used to run rock and roll shows at the Brooklyn Paramount, and he'd bring in acts. I I can say that I did see Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, the Drifters and Little Richard and several others. I never saw Buddy Holly. Mm-hmm. And they would play shows for, you know, an hour and a half. They might have one late afternoon on Friday afternoons, and then they'd fill them up on Saturday. They'd have two, three shows and maybe another show on Sunday. And we're talking about a movie theater that would seat 4,000 or so. Right, and yeah. They, uh, at that time, you know, popular records... Uh, two minutes. That would right. that would be it. And what he'd do is you'd get one ash. Yeah. Jerry Lee Lewis might be on there uh, for three minutes, and he'd be playing condensed versions of a whole lot of shaking going on and uh, breathless. Uh, yeah, so so to, to, it, what's so interesting about rock and roll in, uh, specifically, and music in general, is that similar to baseball, similar to what the, the powers that be wanted out of baseball, everybody wants a definitive moment where rock and roll exists. Uh, and a lot of people say it's rock around the clock. Obviously, it's not considering uh, if you get into the Saturn. music. Uh, it, it, it was it was a it was an evolu- it was a very slow evolution 
that really kind of starts with the invention of the electric guitar going all the way back to the 30s. You heard the Boswell sisters use the term rock and roll. Obviously, it, it, if anybody does the research, rock and roll is referring to the actual physical movement of sex. So, uh, sure. the, you know, the, you, had boogie, you had Boogie Woogie in, in the 40s. Um, you would win, well, Winoni Harris and the blues, the, the blues yellers. Right, right. And you had, you had, you know, Winoni Harris, Big Joe Turner, and the blues uh, yellers, the, 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 the screamers, the blues screamers, uh, as, as you will. In 1953, you're right in Crown Heights. You're 10 years old. Uh, you mentioned the drifters. So, and, you know, everybody wants to say 1955, all of a sudden, poof, there's rock and roll. What is well, your feeling in Brooklyn with do with with doo-wop, with with everything with with what it, and, and it's so remarkable to me it was all considered really just separate black and white music they would talk to the black artists like you got to get some white faces out there you got to get white faces out there what, what what being in Brooklyn at 1953 what's your feeling about all of this uh, we're interested in the music not the color of the guy's skin, just the music. Did it have a beat? Would you give it an 85? Could you dance to it? You know, uh, in the 50s, you had Dick Clark. They had a local show in New York City that they held during the weekdays every day, like a dance party at a studio in Manhattan, I think it was Herb Shelton or something like that. And lots of kids would show up there. Uh, You had the, and it wasn't that, well, everything emanates from New York. You know, people would listen to other stuff and uh, other singers. They'd listen to blues from Chicago. They'd listen to, Music from the Southwest, like Buddy Holly. I mean, he Buddy Holly died in '59. Uh, you have the Everly Brothers coming out of country or or bluegrass music. Uh, so it was all around, <laughs> and a guy who was very popular, Sam Cooke came out of gospel music and uh, did a lot of popular songs. Uh, Jackie Wilson, I think he had like a three, three and a half octave voice and he he could have, it would seem like almost operatic areas that he sang, but it was rock and roll songs like Greet Petite or Lonely Teardrops. Uh, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's what we like. That's what we, that's what we dance to at the sock hops at, at school. So we weren't... The only place where you could say that race came in is why is it that Pat Boone is recording Little Richard's songs. Right. Right. I mean, this is this is like having a corned beef on rye with mayonnaise. <laughs> 
so here, so here's my question, and I uh, it uh, let's see, yeah, we're we're before two thirty, so that's perfect. Um, there's two two popular white artists that I want to bring up, but since since you're talking about Pat Boone, I will start in the appropriating element of Elvis. What 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 is it that separates Elvis from Pat Boone? In that he still like he people have accepted him as obviously the king of rock and roll, but accepted him doing what was at the time known as black sound. Uh, what, you know, it, 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 it's always very controversial. It's always been controversial with Elvis, but it seems something separates him from the Pat Boons that people still to this day don't respond pro- uh, properly to in terms of the covers of black artists he did. Well, let me give you probably the best example. Elvis was signed to Sun Records. He was signed by Sam Phillips. This is out of Memphis. Sam Phillips said he'd make a million dollars if he could find a white singer who sang like a black man. And one of the first big hits for Elvis on Sun Records was, well, that's all right. That's all right, Mama. And, uh, I mean, he had a black sound to him. And he was white. And he he was theatrical. Uh, couldn't dance as well as Jackie Wilson. I think James Brown took tips from Jackie Wilson. Oh, James Michael Brown. Michael Jackson, too. <laughs> uh, James Brown, you know, wasn't exposed to much of a white audience until the 60s. Uh, another guy who I saw who I thought was great, and this was somebody who you felt they could play anything, Ray Charles. Yeah. And he first recorded for, I think, Atlantic Records there uh, out of yes. New York City. And he played he, jazz and and blues. I remember there was an album, uh, the, the Ray Charles Story. In the 50s, he was already putting this stuff out. And there were a lot of great things on there. And we listened to him. Hey, New York City, what do you got? Your choice of 80, 90 different radio stations? If you couldn't find something to like that was on the radio, you could always go down to the record shop, and they were all accommodating. Hey, I want to hear the new Sam Cooke. I want to hear the new uh, Larry Williams. And they slap a forty-five on the turntable. Larry Williams. Be now, that's, that's, in the a, store. that's a that's a good name pulling out. Larry Williams. Now, now, see you later, alligator. Am I correct? Uh, the original see you later, alligator. Uh, I got a gal named Boney Maroney. She's as skinny as a stick of macaroni. Right. You ought to see her dance with the blue jeans on. She's 
not very fat. Short fat Fanny, cold. of course. Short short fat yeah. Fanny. Don't forget that one. Slow down. Dizzy Miss Lizzie. Bad boy. Yes. She said yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, it's a great name to bring up. Oh, and his cousin. It's interesting. Lloyd Price was his cousin. Um, and Lloyd uh, just, Price so, was so probably we, as good or as nice a man as Larry Williams was definitely a bad boy. Uh, he <laughs> he would make he would make Ike Tina uh, Ike Turner seem like a nice guy. Right. <laughs> Jesus, wow! Well, yeah. that's that's a whole other that's a direction to go off on. But I'm going to finish with with in terms of the music side of things, and, and it's just making me realize I need to talk about music on here a lot more because that's something I always like. You know, when it comes to the atmosphere. You got to set the music. You got you got to figure out what the sound was, and I wanted to get as broad of an idea as possible. Not only what was going on with popular music from 1937 and 1957, but what was going on in every level of music uh, that you can you can come out out with. And something that even outside of that era that I'm talking about, Frank Sinatra didn't really get there until 39 in terms of being with Tommy Dorsey. I think. All or nothing at all. I think his first big hit was was 1939. So going like 1953, what what's so remarkable to me about Frank Sinatra is, of course, he was very skeptical and and wary of rock and roll. And but what what's remarkable to me about him is that he continued to have hit after hit in every era of music that he was alive for. And and uh, I'm sorry to sorry to to just to finish with this point. Even though it's outside of the the era that I'm talking about when it comes to this Dodgers story, 1966. That's life. He knew a he he had such he was very good at, with adapting, and he was able to get a pop song out of that that was very bluesy and I think that's one of the reasons why he was able to stay relevant outside of New York, New York in the 70s he was able to stay relevant throughout the 60s because of hits like that, like that's well, life he, that he had recorded, a very bluesy undertone He recorded on the Reprise label and a lot of hits came there from the 60s, now he had a dry spell after World War II and he was, they were thinking he was sort of washed up. And then he had the part of Maggio in From Here to Eternity, 19, Eternity, 1953, with Montgomery Cliff in the lead as uh, Robert E. Lee Pruitt. And so this made... Sinatra significant again and he was very good when he was recording with the Dorsey Orchestra and with the the Pied Pipers Uh, probably for my money the best rendition of Stardust but then he came out with albums in the 50s like Only the Lonely he has a song Angel Eyes, 
which is just yeah, he was all, he was he was a pioneer in how to in making an album too, just in terms of the actual art of of an album. Well, one of the first uh, concept albums, you know, in the wee small hours of the morning. Yeah, I'm gonna give I'm gonna throw you a curveball. You bringing baseball back into this. As much nice. as you think, and you highly esteem Frank Sinatra, I can name for you, I can tell you a name of an album, the first album that this man ever did. He never recorded in this style again, but it would just blow your mind. Johnny Mathis' first album, was a jazz album. And he covers Sinatra. Mm. He covers Billy Eckstein. Uh, You've heard the song Fly Me to the Moon, I think. Fly Me to the Moon was a jazz hit for a guy, Joe Hornell, called In Other Words. Billy Eckstein's big hit was Caravan. If anybody heard Johnny Mathis sing these songs, they would wonder, why didn't he stick to jazz? He was that good. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't like him that much. I, I have always, weirdly enough, and we're going we're gonna to get back uh, on on to um, Brooklyn and the Dodgers in a second, but interestingly enough, and I'll have to listen to that jazz album. I've never taken. I'm taken to Perry Como. I'm a. I've I've was raised on Sinatra, but I've never really cared much for Johnny Mathis. And I'll have to that's, I'll have to go back to what you're talking about. That's the only one that you should listen to when Mathis was 19 years of age. He used to go around to churches. He used to go around any place that would give him an opportunity to sing. And uh, here's another thing about him that you you might not know. He was an athlete. He was at the University of San Francisco. He was a high jumper. His best friend on the campus was Bill Russell, the basketball player. Believe it or not. <laughs> and Mathis well, it always, it, it's, it's funny the way, the way everything always ends up connecting, you know? Well, the funny thing is, is with, with Mathis, his second album was a religious album. Nobody knows yeah. about this. Yeah. It, yeah. And for all you music listeners out there, by all means, we're going to have to go and explore the Johnny Mathis discography. Um, so here's how we're going to get back to it, uh, Robert. I, I want to ask you first about your mother and then about your father, if you will. Give us a little bit of back, their background, how they made it to Brooklyn. Well, my mother... She was born in what would say you would call rural Suffolk County, 
in Long Island. She was born in Setauket, Long Island. Uh, my mother and her brothers and sisters were the first generation born in America. And there were six of them who survived to adulthood. I'm second generation. I'm the youngest child of the youngest child. My mother followed in her older sister's footsteps and went to receive a RN degree at the Brooklyn Jewish Hospital in Brooklyn. Well, if my mother got her uh, RN when she was 21, she had been living in Brooklyn, and she actually, and, and you might have recognized this this place. Do you know where Turner Towers is on Eastern Parkway? The big residential building almost directly across from the Brooklyn Museum. She lived in that yes. place. Yes, yeah, and, and um, I always think that that and Prospect Park West remind me the most of, like, Brooklyn's Park Avenue, if you will. Uh, obviously, Brooklyn has a Park Avenue. But that, that, that's always, like, what I, what I think about when I see those buildings. But uh, she lived there, and... I don't know if my mother had moved to 255 and uh, my father met her. I don't know where, but they started dating and they were, you know, this is an apocryphal story told many times. They went to big band dances. That's how my father courted my mother. My father was raised in the South, graduated from college in 1927, moved to New York. He was an accountant, uh, partnered up with somebody, and he didn't have uh, any economic problems during the Depression. And so he got, I think he was the first in his family, although he had two older brothers, to go and get married. My parents got married in 37. My brother was born in 39. I was born in 43. Both of them were FDR Democrats. (laughs) Tried and true. And the thing about my parents is You know, they accepted everybody. They didn't discriminate against anybody. And, you know, a lot of times what we learn from our parents, what makes an impression on us, is observation. Now, my mother had been a nurse. My brother had uh, suffered from, oh, not asthma, but rather from hay fever. He had to get shots during the summer. My mother would go and give them to him. And, of course, in our apartment building, 
every neighbor knows every other neighbor's business. Everybody knew that my mother had had been a nurse. They would go and ask her questions. There was an older lady who lived down the hall of her spinster daughter. The woman went into cardiac arrest. The daughter is ringing the doorbell. I'm seven years old. This is 1950. My mother goes down there. Now, I had to go with her. How my mother would know, you know, this daughter's explaining what happened to her mother, wanting help. So my mother knew it was cardiac arrest. My mother gets her hypodermic. I don't know why she had a vial of adrenaline. Did you ever see Pulp Fiction? Yep. Just what I was thinking. Here I am. I'm seven years old. She goes to the old lady, unbuttons her blouse. I don't want to see that, but hell. She takes the hypodermic and whop right into the heart. And I'm going, whoa. (laughs) She revives her, has the woman call for an ambulance, and that's it. And to my mother, no big deal. Yeah, it's just how it how it, how everything goes. It's yeah, it's remarkable. Then that summer, so, well, I'm at camp. I'm at camp. I'm fishing with my buddy from the dock. We're seven years old. The water there is maybe twelve feet deep. Here he falls into the water. What the God's name am I going to do? I'm a seven-year-old. And then I hear, coming down the dock, clump, 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 clump. Here's my father. You've seen these machines at restaurants and places where you have the big claw goes down and grabs a toy? Here's my father. He reaches over, grabs him by the nape of the neck, picks him up, and sets him back on the on the dock. And, oh, everybody's saying, oh, you saved his life. You saved his life. You're great. My father says, well, you know, I just happened to see it fall into the water. I didn't do anything different than what anybody else would do. Okay, that sticks with me when I was seven years old, and I can still see it in my mind's eye. This is who my parents were. Uh, I I got an affinity for for music and all kinds. I I never looked down, like I said, my nose at my parents' music. Because my mother was always playing that on the radio or on we, our record player was a Victrola. Hmm. And she'd be playing all this stuff all the time. 
And so, yes, I I knew, you know, Count Basie and Duke Ellington and Glenn Miller and and uh, uh, any a number of these band leaders of swing orchestras. And my mother tried to educate my brother and I, give us culture, and that didn't mean buying yogurt for us. It meant Long Jeans Symphonette put out a monthly subscription to what they called the Little Masters. And she played that for us, so we would have culture. We'd know who Bach and Beethoven were, uh, Ferde Grofe's Grand Canyon Suite. So we received that type of education. We 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 didn't, let's say, discriminate about music. And of course, uh, I can say one group that uh, I loved was the Coasters. <laughs> and. Charlie now the posters. Tell tell me tell me um, if I'm wrong again, and I'm going to look it up as I, I go this. And of course, it goes back to music, right? The coasters yep. were born out of the Orioles. I I can't give you a definitive answer, so I'm not going to give you an answer and make a fool of myself. I mean, I of course, all the Lieber and Stoller songs, Searching. Oh yeah. Is a great one. Oh, the Robins. They they were the Robins. Uh, so a couple, I, 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 two two of the uh, of the guys from the Coasters uh, were the Robins. It, it's it, it's interesting because the Robins uh, I've heard on uh, doo-wop as well uh, of some of the doo-wop records, the early doo-wop records that date all the way back to 1948. But really, so you you're can a, say the you're a spots, big I always think. Fan? Yeah, I would call myself just a music, uh, you know, a big music fan in general. I mean, you know, I, I was surprised when you hear uh, the Ink Spots, if I didn't care, it's crazy when you hear that and think that's 1939. And basically, you know, harmonious vocal groups had been very popular since the 30s. It just so happened they converged with R&B, in the what really is the the original R and B R rhythm and blues, which is is kind of when you when you hear current days R and B, you don't necessarily think rhythm and blues, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, so I yeah I've, I've I'm certainly a connoisseur when it comes to all of that stuff, and I know there's there's always more music to to hear, for one. But uh, oh. but I I I'm I'm curious though. Before, since we're getting into the last ten minutes of the show, um, I, I'm I'm curious about going from the '50s into the '60s in, in your career. Uh, you continue to live in Brooklyn. You continue to work in Brooklyn, and uh, I was hoping that you could you could uh, uh, go a little bit into that before we end the the uh, the show, just about your overall Brooklyn experience for our listeners. Okay. I graduated from college in 1964. I went to graduate school uh, at the University of Florida and then at Hofstra University. Since I had changed my major, uh, 
I had to make up a lot of undergraduate student uh, courses as a graduate student, but I did not get a deferment from the draft. And so I had to stop going and look for a job uh, because I couldn't take a chance of being drafted as a non-matriculating graduate student. And I became employed by the New York City Department of Welfare with social services maybe now. And I worked there from November of 1965 through to September of 1972. And those six, seven years that I spent uh, I mean, it made a bold impression on me. They had instructed us in training. They said, if you could make an improvement in two cases in your caseload, and you could go from 65 to 100 cases a year. If you, And this doesn't mean getting them off of welfare, but any kind of improvement, no matter how small it was, then you earned your salary. And I looked at that and I said, that's crazy. And sometimes, uh, you know, you have the opportunity to actually go and do something. Uh, I believe in February of 1966, I had to deliver a baby. And, oh boy. Wow. Yeah, yeah of a a 18-year-old girl first child and she was in labor and and I had knocked on the door and went into the apartment and there she is in labor and here's where maybe the Dodgers come into effect or maybe baseball I was scared to death and was wondering where could I find a catcher's mitt when the baby comes out so I wouldn't drop it Kind of stupid, right? And <laughs> patting this poor girl's hand and raising my head and eyes to the heavens and saying, Jesus Cristo, donde esta usted? Ayúdame, ayúdame, pronto. Which is, uh, Jesus Christ, help me. Help me, yeah. quickly. And uh, well, that was the first opportunity there. And I never got the feeling, you know, that anybody on welfare was any less than what I was. That maybe they didn't have uh, the environment to maybe have gotten where I had. But the idea was to help people, to try to do something for them, even if it was nothing more than, you know, getting them registered to go and get their GEDs or go and uh, have them take classes in learning how to use commodity foods or to go shopping with them, to take them to 
furniture stores to go and get the best deal. Uh, this was the idea behind that. And I've been into, I mean, really some of the worst neighborhoods in Brooklyn, like uh, Brownsville, East New York, Red Hook. And you look at it, and these are people who are in need. Can't look down my nose at them. You know, uh, like, we didn't make a lot of money working for welfare, but this would be like what the biblical approbation about uh, the man who said he he cursed his luck because he had no shoes until he met a man who had no feet. So instead of looking up uh, the ladder of success and thinking that what I should do is I want to get up there, maybe I should look down the ladder of success and see how many people are worse off than I am and offer a hand up because there had to be in almost anybody's past somewhere that somebody reached up or reached down and helped me up. And, uh, uh, you know, this is definitely reinforced for me uh, working for welfare. I did save uh, one young woman from uh, committing suicide. And uh, mm. I'm happy to say that uh, I gave her away at her wedding. And the last words that she had said to me was, was I proud of her because she had lived up to what my expectations were for her? Bring, hmm. Brings tears to your eyes, making making you yeah, reflect. So she, you're still in touch with her, and and she's still going well, strong. Not, no, not really. I have been in touch with a uh, well in the seven years of working there for welfare. Uh, had this family, uh, Puerto Rican Irish family. Uh, five children, uh, the daughter, the oldest child, was like a little mother, mature, very intelligent, very sensitive, you know, just really a great kid. And uh, here we were living out in the Midwest, and sometime during the late 70s, the FBI comes here because she had enlisted in the Army as uh, for the Department uh, working with the Department of Defense in doing decoding intelligence work. And so she put me down as a reference. And, uh, <laughs> you know, to this day, I've been in contact with her. And, uh, I mean, she's just uh, uh, very 
proud of her. I, in fact, I I got a little sentimental and I said, you know, if I had to have a second daughter, I would pick you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you get yeah. you get that, and, and it's it's like, you know, I don't have to tell you we're all in it together. You're yeah. you're doing something that's meaningful because you're having these podcasts and about people and this great love that people had for the Dodgers. It's 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 very hard to describe. The closest thing that we had here in Kansas City was in nineteen eighty when George Brett was flirting with four hundred and in late August he was over four hundred. And I mean, the people were just nuts over them. And you saw bumper stickers on cars, George Brett for president in 1980. And you'd be surprised at the number of kids, boys who were born nine months later, whose first name was Brett. Right. And that kind of fanaticism. (laughs) And you might also say... No, George? No, not George. <laughs> no, no, that's that's for the uh, father of the country to have that name. But uh, yeah, you had that. Well, I, I, closest... I appreciate I appreciate you uh, uh, just you, you know it, it's it's interesting to frame it that I'm doing this selfless thing because it's a very selfish. Uh, it's you know entertainment and us artists are very self-involved and sometimes a little too self-involved. We have to check ourselves. Um, but one way or another, it's still very humbling to hear you say, uh, that, that, and, and, and you're, you're right though, that even in like the, the biggest challenge other than, you know, trying to convince the Dodgers and MLB eventually that, that this is a good idea for them. Um, it is, is, capturing that feeling of what Brooklyn was, what the Dodgers were, and what the the relationship was between both of the, the two. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's something that, from the Brooklyn perspective, it was the last thing, as far as I'm concerned, and the Dodgers never, the, the Brooklyn never thought it would, it would go away. But it was the last idea of their independence, the last thing they had to hold on to the fact that they were a former city because the Dodgers got formed when they were a city. And everybody always said, you know, oh, it's, it, it's so interesting that it was, it was a ball team for a, a, a borough. Like, that was very unique. But, but it, 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 it only became that. It was a ball team for a city community, and it, it was the last thing, the last institution, really. Even even to this day, when you're looking at Brooklyn right now, the the the, the echo of all of that, and Brooklyn, the way Brooklyn has become independent, the the way Brooklyn reacts independently, is they don't even realize is an echo from. That that last vestige of them holding on to the fact that they were 
a very viable city in and of itself. Well, I would I would agree with that. I know uh, the biggest shock was, and maybe the biggest disgrace, losing the Dodgers, our identity, not having a daily newspaper. You know, three million. Yeah, the Eagle, 1955. Yeah, and you think of that, and. Well, I don't think that you can count Billy Mitchell Field as an airport either. So, what can I what can I tell you? So, and we, and you know that's 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 just that's just how it how it goes and how life goes and people move on. The Dodgers moved on, and you know we we all move. It, it's it trying to uncover exactly what Walter O'Malley's intentions were, other than just making money, you know, the, the entire thing is more nuanced than everybody likes to break it down. So in that context, you yourself moved out to the Midwest. So uh, to finish this podcast off, how did you do so? Uh, what, what, was, what was the way that that uh, uh, went? How did that uh, unfold? As well as what, what, what are some of the the things you fell in love with about Kansas City? Well, make it real simple for you. As I told you, that lived there on Eastern Parkway. Of course, the neighborhood's all changing. Uh, my son had just completed kindergarten. Our daughter was born in March of 72. And my wife was mugged at knife point in the elevator. Well, it's one thing, you know, to be a single man and being brave. And you could be like what in the Billy Joel song, I walk through Bedford Stye alone. Well, you can be a hero for yourself, but you can't be, you can't protect your family in that situation. And I said, we're moving. And so we moved out here, and I managed to find position and hold on to it. And the thing that was good about Kansas City is, like, historically, the westward expansion, the famous trails west, came out of the city next to Kansas City, Independence, Missouri, the Santa Fe Trail, the California Trail, and the Oregon Trail started there. One of our great presidents, Harry Truman, was from Independence. The uh, sports scene, here you have the Kansas City Chiefs. I was always a fan of the Chiefs and the Oakland Raiders in the AFC. And I was happy that uh, the second shot at the Super Bowl, that the uh, the Chiefs won that. Baseball, get an expansion team there. And they were 
much better as a new team, made greater selections uh, for players than the Mets had done when the Mets had started. Uh, Kansas City was in the started in '69, had Rookie of the Year in Lou Pinella. They had a phenom pitching for him in the early 70s. He went out with a bad arm. Steve Busby with two no-hitters. You had a, another pitcher from Brooklyn. I mean, not playing from Brooklyn, but born in Brooklyn. Dennis Leonard, very good pitcher. And they bamboozled the Mets at, and got some very good players from the Mets in trades. So uh, the baseball, I used to follow it with my my father-in-law. We we didn't enjoy it. Well, I'll, I'll finish with this. What brought you out to Kansas City as opposed to any number of other places, of course, but specifically around this area, Long Island, New Jersey, even Pennsylvania, uh uh, Westchester. What 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 brought you all the way out there? Well, my my wife's from out here, and if mm. we're going to move, okay. and we've got two children under six, what was most important was, you know, to have a support group of family. Uh, as I said, my mother was one of six children surviving uh, childhood. And it was a very, very close-knit family. We've had relatives live with us. Uh, I knew almost every one of my first cousins and some second second cousins as well. Second cousins, uh, a lot of them were close to my age. And you had that support group. You have the family as a support group. I mean, both my father and my mother were both family-oriented. Yeah, they had friends outside of the family, but it was the family, my my mother and her two sisters. So they were almost always together. And uh, they're the ones who lived the longest. I had one aunt die at 98. My mother was 95 when she died. And my last aunt, uh, the oldest sister, died when she was 106 and had lost nothing mentally. And so what you go through if you've experienced what the family was and having this family back background, then this is something that you wanted to do. And this is the uh, the place to go. Amazing. And That's- I still haven't explored Kansas City enough. I've eaten at Arthur Bryant's. Uh, I had a, I think you. it was a pulled pork sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, Good for you. So I, I pulled off on, on, on the way through to Denver, 
Um, but I did briefly do a little lift driving out in Kansas City uh, when I when I was testing the waters and seeing what I could do with the rental car I had in Philadelphia at the time. Um, but Robert, it's been such such a thrill to talk with you today and and get a little bit of a Crown Heights of uh, 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 more of a Crown Heights vibe. We always, you know, since it's it's the neighborhood that Ebbets Field was in, as much as people say that you know it was it was the uh, the Flatbush folk. Um, it really is the, the edge of Crown Heights. So it, it's always great to talk to people who uh, lived right where Abbott's Field was. And uh, we always like to end with our last words, so I'm going to pass it over to you, uh, whatever your, your final thoughts are on this lovely afternoon. Well, I, I think that anybody that you interview, you sh- uh, they should be thanking you for giving them an opportunity to talk about things that they love. I think I had spoken to you before and said just the fact of where we lived, the proximity to the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens, the Brooklyn Museum, and what, because I am a reader, of how we knew we were no longer a child this is when we got our first library card from the Brooklyn Public Library. And that still impresses me in Grand Army Plaza and uh, the park headquarters for Prospect Park with uh, the park headquarters being an old Dutch farmhouse from the 1600s or the brass plaque in Prospect Park on the roadway for where General George Washington stood during the Battle of Brooklyn. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. It's there. Uh, and I don't think that I am any different from anybody else, uh, say, of my generation who had been raised in in Brooklyn, who doesn't have that kind of high regard for where we were brought up. So that's so really well said, things. and I appreciate that, Robert. Go ahead, Robert. Finish off. Okay. The only thing I'm going to say is if you will send me an email. With your mailing address, I will give you that list of the baseball books that I had read and about the Brooklyn Dodgers. I don't know. There may be some that you haven't read before. I'm pretty sure that you've read uh, Don Drysdale's book. But uh, I haven't read Drys. I haven't read Drysdale's yet. There, there's so many different books on the. Uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers and, and, you know, individual ones as well that aren't, don't just cover the entire broad history like Drysdale's that are going to be very, uh, very crucial to the development of, of all of this. Uh, Robert Kaiserling, thank you so much for joining us today on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Okay. I thank you for the, again, for the opportunity and, uh, you know, stay safe.
You stay Very safe great. as well. Stay healthy out there, and I can't wait to socially distance with you out in Kansas City at some point in the near future. And thank well, you all out there for for listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Uh, tune in next time and stay safe and healthy. Take care. Okay. Thank you very much, fam. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye, everybody.